welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and today we have the second Q&A of the week. So today we're going to dive into a gang of more questions. We had a ton of questions, uh, so we decided to do two. So if you didn't check out Monday's episode, make sure you check that out after this. Go hit the download button to make sure that you got that in your queue, in your library, uh, ready to go, waiting on your playlist. Uh, Really good Q&A, and we answered most of the questions. And today I'm going to pick it back up, and I'm going to finish those questions that we got sent in by you, the listeners. So as always, guys, if you want your questions answered... um, I want to answer your questions. (laughs) So do me a favor, send those to us through the form. It's the best way to do it. It goes right to Travis who produces the podcast. He makes sure that he has it. He's usually here doing these with me and he'll have it ready to go for me to answer. Uh, And you can put as much as you want into those. Make sure you're also following me on Instagram at Cody McBroom because I do uh, post for questions on there quite frequently and I'll bring a lot from Instagram here to answer on the podcast. And then last but not least, check out the Facebook group. It's a private Facebook group you can get access to for free for being a listener. You can just click the link in the description of this podcast. It'll take you right there. So you can fill out the form on the Ask Boom Boom link in the description. You can check out the Facebook group and you can ask questions there because we post every single Tuesday and ask the listeners in the group for questions. Or you can stay tuned with my Instagram. I think you should do all three. But that's how you get your questions answered on this podcast. So without any further ado, let's dive right in to these actual questions. The first one is from Jessica Stahl. Where did you learn most about training form and advanced variations or different setups to feel the correct muscles? Uh, so I guess the the question really is like, where did I learn most of my uh, information and knowledge? And it's it's kind of an array. So I obviously have my uh, certified personal training certificate, my CPT. Uh, I also have a PES, a performance enhancement specialist, which is more of an advanced personal training certificate. Um, I have gone through numerous certifications, workshops, seminars, online courses, all kinds of stuff like that. And it, it's hard to pinpoint, you know, I mean, I just have learned so much. So I think I'll just give you some advice. I mean, at the end of the day, if you're a trainer, if you want to go that route, you probably should have your personal training certificate. If you're not a trainer, if you don't plan on making this career and you just want to simply know more for your own training and you just want to be the best gym goer or trainee that you can possibly be, I would recommend uh, not getting your personal training certificate. Um, I just don't think it's actually that valuable, to be honest with you, when it comes to just uh, knowledge for yourself, when it just comes to like obtaining information for your own good in order to better yourself uh, as a gym goer, a trainee, an athlete. but there's a lot of things that you can use if you're a trainer or if you're just somebody who wants to be a really intelligent fitness enthusiast that I think would help uh, and do wonders for your information, your knowledge, and your actual training. So books are going to be huge. Uh, I've read countless books. Um, I think subscribing to things like Mass Research Review, Weightology, Alan Aragon's Research Review, any kind of research review that you click with and vibe with. Um, my personal favorite is Mass Research Review. I've mentioned them countless times and I have no affiliation with them. I just really like what they put out. Uh, and I really enjoy that and that's a good source, but that's that's a source that's going to teach you more about actual research. So when a study comes out on unilateral training or on knee wraps or supplementation, nutrition, whatever, they're going to review the study and they're going to give you the uh, actual application and takeaways. They're going to give you the cliff notes. They're going to give you the interpretation of it, which is super helpful, especially for anybody who maybe isn't uh, 
well-versed in how to read research or how to take a research study, a PubMed study, and actually translate it into practical application of coaching, right? Uh, so that's a really good resource, but countless books. Uh, I think coaching is one of the biggest things. We work with a lot of coaches, so obviously we're here to help, but in general, like, uh, I actually have a post. I don't know if it'll be out by the time you guys listen to this, but I wrote a mechanic uh, or, or a coach who hasn't been coached is like a mechanic who doesn't have their license, and it, it, if you really think about it, it's kind of, it's kind of similar, right? It, it's this idea that like, you know what, if you've never been in the client's shoes, like what right do you have actually coaching them through the process? And I think that's a very valuable thing. You don't need to be the most shredded, ripped, jacked, strong, powerlifting person in order to coach people on training and nutrition. You don't need to look that crazy. Uh, shit, I have clients that look better than me without a doubt. But I can tell you this, I have more experience than them, both coaching and, and as a client. I have been coached for years. I still am coached, right? Like I, I constantly am getting coached by other people who are in the industry and in the field because it really does make the world of a difference in how you approach it because you put yourself in the client's shoes and you know how they are going through the experience, right? You understand their experience. You understand um, how their mind is working, right? And so uh, I think it's really important to get coached number one. I think it's important to go to seminars uh, and workshops, things that you can do hands-on. Obviously, it's harder now with COVID and everything, but uh, when you can or when things open up more or if there's certain places that you can fly to and do um, and be safe about it or whatever, go do it because one of the most important things I've found valuable inside of my coaching career is going to seminars where people do hands-on stuff. I fly out there, I attend the seminar, and then we go into the gym and we practice what we're talking about, right? So going to uh, in-person certification or courses or workshops with really well-known in, in uh, legendary or classic strength coaches that have been in the industry for a long time, super, super important. It's going to be super helpful. Um, great books like Practical Programming, uh, which is somewhat outdated, but there's still good stuff in there. Mike Matthews' books are great, a more simplistic approach, but really good. Uh, the Bigger, Leaner, Stronger books. Um, reading books like The Muscle and Strength Pyramids, if we want to get more into the science and, and a better understanding of uh, volume, intensity, frequency, periodization, uh, that kind of stuff. Um, what else? Um, tons of great content from Christian Thibodeau, Dr. John Russin, Joe DeFranco, people have been in the industry for a long time. Dave Tate, going back and reading a lot of John Meadows stuff. Uh, unfortunately, he passed away, but looking at his books and his programs and stuff like that was always something that helped me a ton because he had a lot of uh, cutting edge stuff that had not been always been proven by research yet, but was really on the forefront of exploring what he could find out through experience. Um, watching Jeff Nippert videos. I mean, there's just so much free content content out there and paid content through books that you should be consuming and learning from that will make you a better coach and you learn a ton. But when I think of this specific question, where did I learn most of what I know about training form in advanced variations <clears throat> or different setups to feel the correct muscles? There's a few things here. Where did I learn most about training books, workshops, certifications, and experience of working with people. Where did I learn most about advanced variations? Uh, I would say being coached and reading about experience-driven training content. And I say that because that's not because the people that wrote it aren't science-based or evidence-based practitioners, but they are speaking through experience. So they're talking about how they train. They talk about the feelings they have, the way they do movements and stuff like that. Things you can't really study, but they have walked the walk and gone through the trenches with, and they can actually show you and teach you and, and, and share with you, and you can take a lot out of from. Um, I think that's huge. And then as far as different setups to feel the correct muscles, that's like coaching, coaching. You know, like when I think of how I learned the most of that, it's getting hands-on with people. It was being in the gym and being coached and being manipulating my form and having somebody 
put their hands on me and, and show me, hey, pull your shoulder back like this, do this, feel this, see this, and, and going from there. Um, sometimes I wish I had somebody that was like a, a very consistent training partner here with me that I could like constantly do that with and film and show you guys what I'm talking about. I just don't have somebody that is nearby that can train with me at the same time and, and at do my programming with me. Um, however, that's a really good thing. So having a coach to go over that and, and the best next best thing really in today's world and with online coaching and everything is sending your coach videos. So like a lot of our clients are sending us videos of what they're doing and I'm pinpointing and picking apart. Here's what you need to change. Here's what you need to fix. Here's how to do it. Like think about this, consider this. Here's a cue to think about why you're squatting or why you're pressing or why you're rowing or why you're doing anything. So that they're, they're clicking and their mind is working with their muscles. Um, so there's a lot there, Jessica, but I hope that helps uh, a little bit. Ashley Hollett, when I deadlift, I feel like my lower back is pulling the weight. I can never feel my glutes. How can I fix this? Uh, one thing to know is that when you're deadlifting, you're not really going to feel your glutes unless you are squeezing at the top in extension, which most people should be doing. So when you get to the very top of the movement and your knees lock out, your hips lock out, and you squeeze your glutes to create that full extension, you should feel your glutes because you're squeezing them. Right? You're squeezing your glutes as hard as you can. But when you're deadlifting, you're not really feeling it in your glutes. And this is also why deadlifts are not a good hypertrophy exercise. They're not designed to be something that builds a lot of muscle. Can they build muscle? Sure. Anything you apply tension in pre, like, uh, to a muscle or uh, an, an, a numerous amount of muscles is going to create hypertrophy, right? You create mechanical tension in a muscle, it's going to build, right? But it's not the best because there's not a lot of time under tension. There's not a lot of mechanical uh, tension. There's not a lot of muscle damage. There's not a lot of focused attention in any one muscle, Um if you consider squats, you can position yourself in a squat where it's very quad dominant. And you can build some really big quads. But a deadlift, I mean, if you're doing a conventional, you're, you're working a little bit of glutes, a little bit of ham, a little bit of lat, a little bit of low back, a little bit of quads. Um, depending on your femur length and your torso, you might be working a lot of quads. You know, you might be working a lot of glutes. You might be working a lot of hamstrings. Um, the type of deadlift you're doing, are you doing a conventional, a trap bar, a sumo, an RDL, a rack pull? Like, it just depends. So I don't think deadlifts are a very good muscle building exercise. And I don't think you should really focus on feeling your glutes inside of a deadlift. If you want to feel your glutes work and you want to build your glutes, you should be doing kickbacks, quadruped, uh, raises, uh, reverse hypers, hip thrusts, glute bridges, things like that. Walking lunges with a slightly extended step. Those kind of things are going to build your glutes way more. Um, and I would deadlift for strength. Deadlift is primarily a neurological movement. That's why outside of an RDL, you really should be doing concentric only deadlifts. Lift super heavy, heavy and then just drop the fucking bar because it's a concentric lift. You're supposed to explode through the floor, even if it doesn't look explosive, right? You could be slowly grinding through it. You're pulling as hard as you can and then you drop the bar. Controlling the weight down is where usually people hurt their backs. Um, so with that being said, as long as your low back doesn't hurt after or the next day from deadlifting, I think you're fine. I don't think like, uh, you know, you should be worrying about feeling your glutes more or anything like that. I think you should be primarily worried about being in a good position with your hips, with your low back, with your entire back, with your, like your shoulders. So pulling the bar down and really getting your lats to fire at the bottom of the movement and then your glutes to fire at the top when you're squeezing your glutes. But both of those are not in order to feel those muscles for them to grow, but rather for them to support where your joints should be lined up before you're actually pulling the weight. So focus on deadlifts being a strength movement. And as long as your low back's not hurting, 
then you're fine. It's not a glute building exercise. It's not a good hypertrophy exercise. It can build your glutes and it can build muscle and hypertrophy. It's just not the best one for that. And then last but not least, um, if your lower back is hurting from deadlifting, there's an array of pieces of advice or things that I could help you with, but I can't tell you unless I know what's going wrong with the lift, um, right? Because there could be so many different things that actually cause the low back to, to be injured or hurt after deadlifting. Uh, Christina, Christiana, Funmi, I want to strength train, but I can't lift heavy at the moment due to diastasis recti. I tried doing circuit training in inter, or circuit and interval training, but it's just not the same. What style of training would help me build some muscle but not hurt my diastasis recti rehab? Um, okay, so for anybody listening who doesn't know what diastasis recti is, it's uh, abdominal separation is like the, the technical thing. Um, your stomach kind of sticks out, your belly kind of sticks out a little bit because there's essentially, you know, the space between your left and right abdominal muscles has widened. Uh, so some people, you can actually see like a, a bigger gap in between their left and right abs, like the rows uh, or the columns of abs. And it's, it's essentially your abdominal wall broke or ripped or tore um, and didn't form back after a pregnancy because it happens all like obviously the the female body changes dramatically when you're going through pregnancy so it's normal for it to separate but a lot of times it comes back so sometimes it doesn't heal all the way or it doesn't completely get fixed um so there's a few things here um that it can heal on its own you can do some like uh, exercises and rehab like you're doing um if it keeps persisting and make getting worse um some people will even have surgery to to fix it which obviously I don't recommend I think you could do other things um but there's you know I'm not going to dive into rehab on it because everybody's situation is different and, and to greater degrees and it sounds like you're already doing rehab for it um but what kind of style should can you do to build muscle around it is just focusing on isolation work. So you're going to probably want to stay away from like heavy hip thrusts, heavy squats, heavy bench press, heavy overhead press stuff that is more like quote unquote full body compound lifting that you are creating tension and bracing and creating abdominal pressure, right? You're, you're creating tension on the bar. You're, you're bracing, you're taking a deep breath in, you're firing your core head to toe, head to toe is tension, pressure, uh, constant tension, bracing. And then you're going through a lift like a squat or a deadlift, right? That creates a lot of inter-abdominal and pelvic floor pressure and tension. And that may cause issues, uh, with this and making it worse. But what I would probably suggest is rather than, uh, doing those things is focus on isolation exercises. So things like close stance goblet squats or leg extensions or unilateral leg presses or leg curls and lateral raises and flies and rows and curls. And I know that stuff's not as fun. And for a while, you probably want to get back to strength training, lifting heavy. But at the moment, you probably just want to avoid a lot of it and focus on building muscle and strength through means that don't create so much intra-abdominal pressure and tension. So maybe instead of doing heavy squats, like you change your like metric-based movement to a split squat or a dumbbell reverse lunge. Like I know that's not the same quote unquote, but you can still use it as a metric based lift. If you're doing like a safety bar or even like a just dumbbell split squat or dumbbell bulk gain split squat or uh, dumbbell reverse lunge, you can say, I'm going to stay in this six to eight rep range and I'm going to try to progressively overload this over time. So instead of having a squat as an, a compound lift, you're switching it up to something like that and you just progress over time. But the majority of your training should be bodybuilding accessory and isolation work to avoid creating that intra-abdominal pressure, which usually just happens when you're doing super heavy compound barbell lifts. Vidal Fuentes 
I have trouble sticking to a program after a few days or when I lack consistency in the gym. What are some ways I can stay motivated, better my self-discipline, and stay consistent? So I think like one, one thing that stands out to me right away is telling yourself that you're motivated, telling yourself that you have great self-discipline, telling yourself that you're going to stay consistent. And I know that sounds funny, but you guys have heard me talk a lot about placebo effect lately because I did the genetics podcast, like, right? Does your genetics, do your genetics matter? If you didn't listen to that, listen to it because it's a really good podcast. And there's a lot of uh, genetic uh, research, I was gonna say testing, genetic research when we talk about fitness and stuff like fat loss that dives into placebo because they tell people they do or don't have these good genetics and uh, the the results are more correlated with what the people believe they had versus what they actually had when it comes to terms with genetics. There's also a lot of good research on the placebo effect like I've already talked about on the placebo podcast. So both of those podcasts talk about this a lot. Both of them made me realize that the more you tell yourself something, the more it becomes true. So if you're constantly telling yourself that you have trouble sticking to a program after a few days or that you lack consistency in the gym or that you can't stay motivated or you don't have good self-discipline, guess what? You are not going to have self-discipline because your actions are going to line up with the story you tell yourself in your head. So the more often you say that you struggle with self-discipline or you don't have good self-discipline, what ends up happening is that you start acting as if you don't have good self-discipline. You start caving in more. You start actually kind of fucking up on the diet. You kind of stop giving a shit. You kind of stop following through and taking action and being consistent and actually doing the work. Why? Because you literally get to the moment where you're going to take action or you need to follow through or you need to prep or you need to eat the meal that you plan or you need to go to the gym or whatever it may be. And you give in, you say, you know what? I don't got it in me. I don't have the best self-discipline, right? You give yourself the benefit of the doubt and you give up. But rather, if every single day you woke up, looked at yourself in the mirror, and you told yourself, I have amazing self-discipline. I am a self-disciplined, badass motherfucker, and I'm going to conquer these results. Now, maybe you don't talk to yourself like that. I talk to myself like that. But however your narrative is, say some positive things for yourself. Hype yourself up. Tell yourself that you are worthy, that you are able to accomplish these goals, and you do have the self-discipline and motivation that it takes to be consistent. And I shit you not, you will. And when I say look in the mirror, I literally did that every day of my life for a long time. I swear to God, I started doing it when I still lived with my parents back when I was like 18, 19 years old, first getting into this stuff, still trying to lose weight, still trying to figure out how I can become a fitness person and all this stuff. I would look at myself in the mirror and tell myself that I could, tell myself that I would step on a bodybuilding stage, tell myself that I would get shredded. I would tell myself in the mirror out loud. And at first it was kind of embarrassing, but then I realized why would I be embarrassed? Nobody is here with me except me. And I just started helping me. I started rewiring the stories in my head. So I think the first step for you, Vidal, is, is pretty simple, man. It's, it's uh, in order to stay motivated and, and more self-disciplined so you can stay consistent, it's telling yourself that you are motivated, telling yourself that you are disciplined. Tell yourself that you do have what it takes to be consistent. You do that, I think it's going to go a long way, man, because your actions will line up with it. It's the same reason why like speaking things into the universe work. It's not because you just say something and then it happens. It's because when you say something out loud, when you speak it in the universe, you claim, right? You proclaim that something is true or going to happen. What ends up happening is that your actions reflect that. So when I kept saying that I was going to eventually expand the facility, I was going to get a bigger place, I was going to have more space, do summer, do all those things. When I was saying that, I was making it seem so real for my future that my actions started aligning with somebody who had that or could do that, right? So I started saying something that ended up producing results and actions in my life that lined up with that thing. 
the person who had a bigger facility, the person who ran seminars, the person who had a business like this, acted a certain way, had certain habits, was consistent in certain areas of their life, was successful in certain areas of their life, could afford to do certain things. And if some of those things weren't yet true, what did I do? I started taking action and creating things in my life to make them true because I knew it was going to happen. So I had to live up to it. And I spoke that into the universe. It's not because it just like I spoke in the universe and it got handed to me on a silver platter. I subconsciously started acting on this. I did a podcast with Dr. Caroline Leaf and I asked her this question because she was going over how the brain and the mind are, are uh, two different things and how like I was asking her about placebo and it's an amazing podcast. Go listen to it if you haven't. It's one of my favorite interviews I've ever done. Might be my favorite interview I've ever done. Blew my mind. But she was saying that a lot of times when you say something and it comes true, it's because you were speaking it into existence and that changed your subconscious actions and behaviors and habits and lifestyle and environment. So what I think is that you should start telling yourself that this will come true. And in one, you will start acting as if it is. And two, your habits, your actions, everything you associate yourself, they will change. It will absolutely change. And placebo is real in the sense that like, obviously I reviewed some of these studies, so go listen to it if you didn't. But the placebo episode, I talked about people's ghrelin, leptin, hunger hormones, physiology actually shifted based on what they believed. People's aerobic ability to perform shifted because they believed they had this one gene that actually helped them be better at aerobic performance, even though they didn't. They were just told that they had this aerobic gene and all of a sudden they started performing better. Because they believe that like, oh shit, they just tested me. I, I have this gene that makes me good at aerobic training. So I better be good at this running and rowing interval test. And they were. They didn't train for it. They just were told that they had good genes for it. Right? So what you believe literally can come true. Now, you don't have some scientist in your corner basically feeding you bullshit and telling you this placebo, right? Like just like the, the steroid trial where they told people they were on steroids even though they weren't. And these guys got freakishly strong even though they didn't take anything but an empty placebo pill. But we don't have somebody doing that for us, so who's going to be the researcher feeding us placebo? Ourselves, our mind. you got to tell yourself that you can, you will, you should, you are. Then it will happen because you will subconsciously change the way you are acting and living and operating day to day, and that's going to lead to the result you want, period. So... Um, I think that's the biggest thing, man. And then obviously I think there's other sides of it, right? If you really stick with consistency, get a coach because a coach keeps you accountable. Accountability is unbelievably underrated. Uh, studies show that it increases your results by 65% and that 65% jumps to 95% of an increased success rate. If you have regular meetings with that coach, which if you're doing any type of coaching, you're probably meeting with them every week, uh, in one way or another via email, via text, via call, via something, right? Uh, so that's going to increase your, your success from anywhere between 65 to 95%. So more than half, at least, if not double, you're going to increase the amount of success you have by having accountability, right? And then the other thing is, is create a plan that is sustainable. So don't go jump onto a fat diet or on some training program that just crushes you that you don't have fun with. Like, no, like instead of that, make sure that you're jumping into a program that you actually enjoy. Part of the thing I always try to do when I'm creating programs for the Taylor Trainer is I really try to focus on how can I create programs that people love to do? They want to go to the gym. They're excited to get there and train because this app is delivering them a program that they're so excited about, which is why I'm so excited about actually uh, hybrid, uh, we're calling it Bulletproof Bodybuilding. I was going between a bunch of different names. I've thought about Bulletproof Body Comp. I've thought about Bulletproof Bodybuilding, Bulletproof Physique. Uh, I've thought about Hybrid Physique. I think I'm going to go with Bulletproof Body Comp or Bulletproof 
bodybuilding. And this will be available to all the app members. And we are also going to do a Black Friday sale for the app if you want to join and, and check us out. But the Bulletproof Bodybuilding, I've already jumped into it and started it myself to beta test. There's going to be a three, a four, and a five-day plan. I get a, I'm getting a bunch of people excited about it. They're hitting me up. They're ready for it. It is really cool. It's a good program. But it's one of those ones where I'm stoked to get in the gym and train. And that's how it should be. You should be excited to go to the gym. So if you're following a program that's not fun and doesn't let you get excited about the challenge you're about to have, then you need to find a new program, man. Plain and simple. I want to take a brief moment to interrupt this podcast and shout out our sponsor, Legion Athletics, the world's number one best-selling brand of all natural sports supplements. Guys, if you're listening to this, you probably take supplements. I'm assuming you take a whey protein. You probably have some pre-workout. If you're really focused on health, you might take a, a multivitamin, a greens drink, a fish oil, whatever it is. Legion probably has it. And they are going to be using science-backed ingredients. Everything is actually dosed effectively and clinically proven. Everything is naturally sweetened and flavored. Everything is lab tested, made in the U.S., and you're going to get a money-back guarantee. So the reason I'm bringing this up is not only because they're a podcast sponsor, but I truly value the team at Legion, and I truly value what they are doing in the supplement space. And one of the things that is really frustrating for a lot of people that come to us is trying to find a brand where they can actually get quality supplements and they can trust the result that's going to come from them. Most people just search Amazon for the best result they can find, and they trust Amazon reviewers. And don't get me wrong, if something has a lot of stars and good reviews, that's awesome. But you can also pay people to leave reviews. So go with a company that you can trust that is backed up not only by science and actual researchers in the lab doing things, but coaches like myself who have tons of experience and use the stuff on a regular basis. So guys, stop wasting money. Stop searching and searching and searching for the best product out there and just jump on Legion Athletics. They are the best and I promise you that. You can head over to buylegion.com slash boom boom and save 20% on your first order and start earning points so you can get kickbacks on future orders and eventually free products. So one more time, that's buylegion.com slash boom boom. Without any further ado, let's get back into the podcast. Okay, drinking my rock star real quick. That was a loaded one. All right. Linda Ryan Ryan. I don't know if she got two name, two first names as last names or her middle name is the same as last or just a typo. But Linda asked, why don't you interview your own coaches and their stories? You say you employ the best, so interview the best. Mind yourself, I'm doing the eight weeks to 22 with Coach Nick Love. All the best from Ireland. Um, okay, so this is not Linda Ryan Ryan. This is Ryan. I don't know where Linda came from, uh, Travis. <laughs> but... Uh, I have. I have interviewed a few of them, actually. Uh, I haven't interviewed all of the coaches on the podcast. Uh, I have interviewed a few of them. And uh, I want to do it again uh, in person. So we're, we're actually, we're all meeting up in January. So I probably will actually be interviewing some of them soon if I can bring my podcast gear out there and we have a good little place to do it. But it's always better in person, you know. Last time we all met up in person, um, uh, just recently this, this summer, I wasn't able to just because we were so busy doing so many things and we didn't have a chance to sit down and podcast all individually. Um, but I do employ the best and uh, the the coaches on my team I know are the best because, I mean, shit, like I hire people that are are already or are becoming smarter than I am and I do that on purpose. They are the most educated people in the field and they are also uh, the most continuing to educate people. They, like they don't stop educating themselves, uh, which is what I love so much about them. So I really do have the best. There's a rigorous process to be a coach for our team. And I say that with pride because we pride ourselves in quality control to the max. Um, 
but it's just a time thing. I just haven't been able to have all of my coaches on. I like doing it in person if I can. And uh, yeah, they all have great stories though. They all have a lot to share and I, I definitely need to do better about getting them all on there so you guys can get to know them better. Kendra de Guzman, as a fitness instructor, I'm wondering what the best protocol is for my training. Currently teaching group fitness classes five times a week, which are heavily cardio-based, spin, hit classes, etc. With that being said, I also weight train four to five times a week because my goal has always been to maintain, if not build more muscle mass. I'd like to avoid the very lean look that fitness instructors typically have when they teach a lot of spin or cardio because I've worked hard for my muscles. Typically an upper lower, upper lower split with an emphasis on certain body parts depending on how many times I can get to the gym. I'm currently maintaining my weight, but if I were to want to cut, start cutting, would you suggest more or le- more slash less weight training or strictly just a deficit? Um, I would. So I think this is like a multifaceted question. Number one, uh, you kind of, you didn't really ask, but you kind of asked. I'm wondering what the best protocol is for my training. I think an upper lower split's great for somebody like you. I think that you just need to prioritize uh, nutrition around your workouts because somebody who's training twice a day, that's really important. Nutrient timing becomes way more important when we have multiple training sessions per day. Uh, It also becomes way more important when you're uh, expending a lot of energy. So you want to make sure you prioritize nutrients around the training window to just shuttle nutrients in the right place. I know nutrient timing is kind of slept on now, but I do think there's a lot of value in it, especially when somebody is training as intensely and as often as you do. Now, um, upper lower split works great. I would probably have a really heavy emphasis on the posterior chain. The reason I say that is because if you're doing uh, cardio-based fitness group classes, um, you named off spin, hit classes, etc. Number one, spin is completely anterior dominant. So anterior being the front side of your body, posterior being the back side of your body. But with a spin class, you're constantly using your quads and you're constantly in hip and knee flexion right? You're never going into hip extension because uh, your hip flexors are firing the whole time in that bent flex position. And then usually you're leaning forward, leaning on the handlebars, which means that your shoulders are rolled forward. Uh, you're actually getting like in a kyphotic position, protracting your shoulders, kind of rounding your scapula forward and your T-spine uh, versus getting any type of extension or rotation. So in your training program, and this goes with high intensity classes too, typically we see a lot of what Band presses, dumbbell presses, squat jumps, squats, burpees. Almost always we're doing a lot of like flexion and anterior based movements. And the reason is because they're easier to do in a hit style cardio class, right? Like pressing dumbbells on stuff to do a row. You need to get under a bar. You need to have a bench. You need to have a TRX. That becomes a little bit difficult when we've got a bunch of people in a room for a class, right? We can do bent rows, but you can't go super heavy in a high intensity fashion for bent rows. So it becomes just kind of like a weird movement with like small light dumbbells. You could do band pull apart, stuff like that, but they rarely do. Um, and you're not going to do glute bridges because then it gets awkward trying to like lay on the floor, not cram into each other. They don't really get your heart rate up, but they do work your glutes. You know what I mean? So it's really it's really hard. You can do kettlebell swings, but not a lot of uh, group fitness classes actually do kettlebell swings properly. Most of them even do this weird like squat, kettlebell raise thing, upper body front raise thing when it's really supposed to be like your arms are hooks and you're sitting into it and it's a very explosive hip hinge. Um, all glutes and hams. So uh, point being is when you're adding strength training into this kind of mixture for anybody, it's really smart to do a lot of posterior chain. So you're going to want to have like a two to one ratio at least of glutes and hamstrings to quads and of traps or lats, rhomboids, like 
your back compared to your chest, shoulders, triceps, stuff like that. Um, and then as far as going into a deficit, if you want to start cutting, um, I would just go into a deficit. I don't think train, so like a few things here. One, training isn't the most important thing to adjust when we're talking about actually losing weight. Uh, and on top of that, your body's probably e- easily adaptable in, in terms of cardio and training because you do so much. It's not going to make a huge difference if you add cardio or if you change your training to be more quote unquote fat loss oriented. Your number one goal is maintaining muscle, kind of like you said. And the best way to maintain muscle is have a high protein diet and strength train enough. So if you're in the, if you're trying to cut and you want to maintain as much muscle as possible, just get into a deficit, keep your protein at at a higher rate, one gram pound per pound or more, most likely. Um, the only time I really like going under a pound, a gram per pound is if somebody has a lot of weight to lose, they're obese, or they have 30 plus pounds to lose. It's different. You know, if somebody has a hundred plus pounds to lose, they're obese. That's you don't need to have your body weight in protein. You should have like your goal weight in protein, right? Um, and to the same extent, if you have 20, 30 pounds to lose, you also don't need to. You can, but you also don't need to. But for somebody like you, who's I'm assuming pretty lean, you probably don't have a lot of weight to lose because of what you're, what you're describing and how you're describing yourself. Um, I would probably have a gram or more per pound of body weight. I would continue strength training four days a week in upper lower split. Um, the only adjustment you might make going into a deficit is lowering volume and focusing more on intensity. So I'd probably rather you focus on keeping the loads you're using heavy so you can still create a lot of neurological and mechanical tension in every single rep versus being able to do a lot of sets of reps. So the only change I would make is maybe dropping a little volume. So if you have four sets of every exercise, maybe you drop to three and you're going heavier to try to maintain that strength during the cut. And then your, uh, your days per week, your split, all that stuff would stay exactly the same. Um, so that's what I would do. That's what I would do in your situation, Kedra. All right. This next question is from anonymous wishes to be, uh, unnamed. I train five to six days a week. I switch my program every five to six weeks and focus on progressive overload. Squats, leg press, Bulgarians, hip thrusts, etc. I train glutes two times with heavy weights uh, in the eight to 15 rep range and added one day high reps, mostly band stuff, body weight exercise, but really burning the muscles out. My delts and biceps, my delts, biceps and triceps are still overdeveloped in comparison to my lower body. My body fat is low for a woman, 15% approximately, and I compete in bikini. What else can I do to balance out my body? Um, that's tough. My delts, and bi- my delts, biceps, and triceps are still overdeveloped. I would cut out all direct shoulder and uh, arm work. You know, at the end of the day, the only way to lower muscle mass in a certain area is to literally neglect the muscle. So stop training it completely uh, while you're dieting and use that volume to train your lower body. Because we got to remember there's there's uh, local volume and fatigue and there's also systemic volume and fatigue. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you do, if you keep all your training the same right now, you keep your bicep, tricep, Dell, upper body work all the same and you still keep and then you add volume to your legs right because you want to grow your legs so let's say you're doing let's say you're doing 15 sets per muscle group per week and then you go you know what I'm going to specialize on my glutes and hamstrings so I'm going to add five more sets per week on glutes five more sets per week on hamstrings okay that's 20 sets per muscle group on hamstrings and glutes and 15 on the rest but systemically overall, that's another 10 sets per week on top of everything you did. So your, your, your nervous system and your systemic fatigue increases, right? Your nervous system can only handle so much total volume, regardless of what body part it's being placed under. And, and 
ones like the glutes and hamstrings that I'm using, for example, here are even more systemically fatiguing because the exercises you do them with are more full body exercises that create a lot of tension and have a lot of load. So you can usually go heavier with those muscle groups because it's a big muscle group and it requires a lot of energy and it, it, it creates a lot of fatigue and it's a lot of strength there. So with that being said, what you would want to do is significantly lower or cut out your delt and arm training for a little bit and take that volume that you remove from your upper body, your arm work, and you move that to your lower body. So systemically from an overall global perspective, your nervous system isn't getting too much more fatigued at all because you've reallocated that volume. So you still are within your total recoverable volume amount. However, you're doing more on the localized muscle groups that you want. So you're going to create more localized damage, which is good because that's going to lead to more growth, but you're not creating more systemic or neurological damage, which is good because it's going to avoid burnout and fatigue. Uh, but that's the best way to, to really go about it. You know, if you train five to six days a week, um, you know, I would, you probably got to cut that down. I mean, if you're training five to six days a week, you're going to be training your upper body quite a bit. I would train three to four days a week and just train way less upper body. That's the best way to do it. How can you balance out your body, lower volume on the muscle groups you want to not develop anymore or to be less developed, take away, and then add more volume to the groups that you want to develop more and balance out so that you're Total volume is, is within reason and your your local volume is more proportionate in the areas you want to go to so that you can develop those areas and balance things out a little bit more. Jamie Lynn Milley, how should you periodize for muscle gain while traveling for work two weeks out of every month? Ooh, that's a hard situation. Um, let's see here. So how you should periodize for muscle gain while traveling for two weeks out of every single month? Um, you're gone half the month that the best way to do that is I would say you're going to have to get really familiar with band training and you're going to have like a two week on two week off split. So let's say you're doing a, what I would do is a very high volume, high frequency program for two weeks and then a low volume, low frequency band maintenance plan for two weeks. So for example, a good split for you could be like a, a six day push, pull legs or a six day upper lower split. So upper, lower, upper, lower, upper, lower, or push, pull legs, push, pull legs, but you're training six days a week. You're going hard. You're doing a lot of volume. It's a high frequency program. I mean, you're pushing yourself to the limit, but you only have two weeks to do it. So you really got to like basically take things almost to complete failure uh, for two weeks straight. And then when you travel, you use band workouts every day. So now your volume drops significantly. Your frequency is still really high, but your workouts are less than an hour now for sure, maybe 30, 45 minutes at most. And it's just band work. So it's just maintenance. You're just trying to touch all the muscle groups, get as much volume as you can, get a sweat on, get a burn. Um, and then when you return home, you pick up where you left off. So you would still follow like a four-week periodization plan, let's say. It's just that you're taking a two-week break in between uh, because that way you don't have too much of a relearning curve. You know, if, you're, if you finish off doing back – if you did week one back squats for eight, uh, then week two it was back squats for six, and then you go away for two weeks. When you come back, you jump right back in for back squats for four and then for two. Right, and so you still follow that linear progression, and then when you go, you go out of town again. You come back, now you restart the block and choose some new exercises, rinse and repeat. Um, so your your mesocycle, instead of one block being four weeks long, it becomes eight weeks long, but you're still only doing four weeks of that high volume program because you have these mini breaks in between. And then when you're away, you're just using the band to try to maintain. You only need half the volume, if that. Uh, most studies show even less than half. I would say half to be on the safe side, uh, but you only need half the volume, let's say, to maintain the muscle and the strength that you've already 
gotten or built. So in that regard, it's probably best to just do whatever you can while you're gone with some bands and stuff like that or in a hotel gym just to maintain the muscle you have. Uh, And then when you get back, you hit it hard. You take it really close to failure. You push yourself as hard as you possibly can. You try to see progress and you rinse and repeat. So high volume, high frequency, all out training, high intensity, like high everything, intensity, volume, like really get after it uh, for two weeks straight, which I usually don't recommend because you can't recover from that for, for long. But the fact that you'd be basically taking half the month as a deload for maintenance with just the bands every month, you can really push yourself to the max in those weeks that you're home. Um, and that's how I would do it. Growing up, Gary Bay underscore, trying to figure out macros. Do I really need one gram of protein per pound of body weight? Seems like a lot. Um, do you really need? No, you don't need, but it could be more beneficial to do so. Um, it's one of those things where it's like, it's like, look, study after study after study shows that you can have a gram, a gram and a half, two grams, three grams per pound. I mean, you can go really high with this. You're not gonna see any negative health consequences. The only time you'll ever potentially see negative health consequences if you already have kidney issues, which is still like, they don't have a lot of research with people who have kidney dysfunction, having a high protein diet and seeing issues because who's going to put somebody with kidney dysfunction in there? I don't want to find out, (laughs) you know, so no research is going to put people who have kidney disease or kidney issues in a study where they're trying to consume high protein to see if it affects them negatively or kills them, right? We're just speculating that it's probably going to be an issue because the kidneys play a big role in filtrating and digesting and absorbing and, and utilizing the protein, right? Filtrating that process out. So let's just not test it. It's probably not a good idea. However, if you don't have a kidney dysfunction and you don't have any issues, there's no reason why you can't consume, digest, absorb, and utilize a lot of protein. We also know that protein is the highest thermic effect food. We also know that when uh, in protein uh, overfeeding studies, so when people are consuming these god-awful amounts of protein in these research studies for a long period of time, there's times where they build more muscle. There's times where they actually lose more fat despite being in a surplus, and that's 100% true. They have seen people who have been in a surplus from eating so much protein, and they still lost body fat, which kind of defies the law of thermodynamics, but... It's what happened. It's what research showed. Bill Campbell, Jose Antonio, people I've had on the podcast have talked about this on my show as well, has done research on it and talked about their research on this. So it's one of those things where it's kind of like, man, if you want to maintain a healthy life, if you just want to maintain weight, you're not really focused on muscle and stuff, by all means, you do not need to have that much protein. I would say for longevity, for uh, bone, tendon, muscle, ligament, all those kind of things for just general health and everything, 0.7, 0.8 grams per pound is plenty. Like that's really all you need. So it's a very, to me, that's a very low protein diet because I'm used to eating high protein. Um, you can also live a long time, be very healthy and consume much more than that. But that's probably where you need to be at least at in order to just promote good health maintenance of tissues, ligaments, muscles, again, longevity, health. Um, and if you want to build muscle, you got to add more. If you want to lose fat and you want to maintain as much muscle as you can while losing fat or potentially losing more fat than you normally would or lose more body fat uh, or just lose body fat in general while eating more calories, all of these situations call for you to eat more protein. And uh, do you really need it? Again, you don't need it, but it's going to be a better situation. So if you decide, you know what, I want to follow a low protein diet, you're probably going to end up having to cut calories even more so 
if you do that. If you're trying to lose weight, you're probably going to have to be on a lower calorie diet than you would have to lose the same amount of weight while eating more protein. Uh, If you want to eat less protein, you're probably going to lose a little bit of muscle mass during the diet where you could prevent that and not lose any or lose very minimal, if any at all, by having a higher protein intake. And last but not least, if you really want to build muscle or get stronger, you're probably going to do so at a better rate if you have good high quality protein sources at in abundance. If you eat a higher protein diet, it's just been shown. I mean, that's the building blocks of muscle. That's going to help you recover faster and build more muscle and strength. And that's going to lead to more muscle growth and strength and neurological adaptations. And it's just from eating more protein. So, um, yeah, I think uh, you really do need that. If you know, I mean, again, you don't need to. Nobody's forcing you to. But if you want any of those results, or if you want those results given the circumstances I mentioned, you're probably going to need to consume a pretty high protein diet. E K R M E K R M thirteen in full body workouts. Is it better to superset opposing lower body muscle groups or upper with lower? Uh, that's a good question. A really good question. Um, is it better to superset opposing lower body muscle groups or upper with lower? I would say upper with lower. You can do either, but here's the thing is when I'm programming a full body program, I know that we're going to be at least training three days a week, if not four or five, right? And uh, given that, I know that the upper body has way more muscle groups. So we have forearms, biceps, triceps, anterior, posterior, and lateral delts. So all three heads of your deltoids, which you can have different exercises for different parts of your delts, your shoulders. Uh, We have your pecs, your chest. We have your abs. We have your traps, your rhomboids, your lats. Uh, We have multiple muscles in between those. You have a lot of upper body muscles. For your legs, you basically have your quads and hamstrings and glutes and calves if you like training calves. I don't like training calves. And when I write programs, especially full body programs that are only three days a week, I don't even put calves in them. If you want to train your calves, you can do that as a warm-up or a a burnout at the end of your training session because there's not much science to it. Do some calf raises. So I don't program that in very often. Now, in full body workouts... The problem here is that we're going to have to program more upper body exercises in total than we would lower body simply because there's more upper body muscles, which means it's probably going to be easier to superset upper with lower or keep lower by itself and then have upper lower supersets. So for example, you could have an RDL by itself and then the next thing could be a bench press in a row, a push pull, upper lower, or sorry, a lower by itself and then an upper body superset, push pull. Um, And that's a good way to do it. The other reason I don't like doing lower body supersets is because it's very difficult to superset two lower body exercises without causing so much fatigue that your performance significantly drops or you get injured. So for example, if you're doing an RDL on a squat together, there's a good chance you're going to hurt your lower back. Also, there's a really good chance you're not going to perform very well with those or with a heavy load and get a lot of volume done because those are very difficult movements. They're full body, big barbell, lower body movements, right? Full body, lower body. (laughs) They're full body demanding lower body exercises with barbells and heavy loads. So they're very fatiguing. So you do a set of RDLs and then you got to go to a squat, like no shot. It's going to crush you. The only time I really like supersetting lower body exercises is in a leg extension, a leg curl variation. So you can do like a split squat with a glute ham raise or a split squat with a leg curl or a leg extension with a leg curl or like a close stance squat with a got like a kettlebell with some like leg curl variations. But when we talk about RDLs and squats and like barbell lunges and rack pulls and uh, even hip thrusts like that, it becomes kind of difficult to superset these because they're just so taxing. And most lower body exercises have some carryover. When I do a lunge, it might be a quad dominant lunge, but I'm still going to get a little glutes, a little little hamstring. I'm still fatiguing my upper body by holding the weights. So I don't like supersetting lower body exercises very much. Um, 
So on a full body workout, I'm more likely to do a triset or a superset mixing the two. So it might be like a lunge with a press or a lunge with a press and a row. So you go eight lunges per side, eight dumbbell presses, and then 10 inverted rows, right? In a triset, three exercise superset, or we're going an RDL and a dumbbell bench press, just two together, or we're going an RDL by itself, and then we're going with a dumbbell bench press and an inverted row together as a superset. Uh, but that's typically how I'm going about it with full body workouts, and it tends to be the best for fatigue and performance overall and injury prevention. All right, last question for today is Candice Flaherty. What's the general amount of time it takes for a slight superset uh, surplus, sorry, to become a new maintenance. So what's the general amount of time it takes for a slight surplus to become a new maintenance? Um, this is a very difficult question to answer because it happens very less often in a surplus. And it's very dependent on the uh, how adaptive or pliable your metabolism is. I talked a little bit about this in the reverse dieting FAQ last week. But if we think about, and I've asked Brandon, uh, Dr. Brandon Roberts on our team, the chief science officer, I've asked him this question to get his thoughts on it and see if there's any literature on it. But I asked him, like, during a deficit, what's the average amount of time that it takes for metabolic adaptation to kick in? So how long does it take for your, uh, your body to regulate, adapt, and be, go, hey, this is our new maintenance, right, and change from the deficit into it being maintenance and your body actually adapts like the metabolism adapts, right? This metabolic adaptation process that we're all afraid of and want to avoid. Well, he said it takes about three weeks. So it takes about three weeks on average for the metabolism to start to regulate and quote unquote adapt and for this metabolic adaptation to occur based on research. So my suspicion, uh, my, my hypothesis, uh, and what I would suspect is that in the reverse, on a reverse diet or a diet break, it probably takes about that long for your metabolism to do the opposite. So my thought is a diet break that's less than three weeks is probably less effective and far less likely to reverse those metabolic adaptation symptoms compared to a diet break that's weak, right? So a lot of times people take a diet break and it's three days, maybe a week, five days, whatever. Those In those situations, they're not getting any reversal of those metabolic adaptation symptoms, especially the hormonal ones, right? All they're getting is a psychological relief. This is why most research shows that diet breaks and refeeds are just psychological. But if we look at, excuse me, if we look at refeed and diet break research, there really isn't any that I'm aware of. Um, and I don't think he had any when I asked him this question, research that shows a diet break being three weeks. So show me a study where somebody diets for 12 to 16 weeks, metabolic adaptation is kicking in full effect, like it's happening. And then they take a three week diet break every nine weeks, right? So every once in a while they put them in a three week diet break. Does that change a four week diet break at three weeks? Do we start to see reversal for those? And then at week four, we can jump them right back into the diet and we see that be a beneficial thing. Maybe, maybe not. This is also why I think it's smart to do um, a 12 to 16 week cut followed by a four to eight week diet break, more like maintenance phase, and then another 12 to 16 week cut to finish the job. I think that's probably better than going 24 weeks straight um, when we consider this sustainability of all this. However, you can definitely sustain the result you achieve if you go 24 weeks straight and you save yourself a month or two of diet breaks. So if somebody's on a time frame, they don't want to wait you can still get it done, right? This is just hypothetical things I'm throwing out there. But the point with this is it might take three weeks for this to happen. But when you're in a surplus, it's not really going to happen because your body's not dropping weight or having to compensate 
because there's a lack of, of reserves, right? So uh, relative energy deficit syndrome, the female triad, metabolic adaptation, all these things happen because your body is taking in less calories. It has less energy reserves and it's kind of going into scarcity mode, right? I know like survival mode is kind of cheesy way to put it, but if you think about it, your body's very smart. It notices that it has less coming in. So what does it do? It adapts by lowering your knee, changing your menstrual cycle, dropping your maintenance calories through all these BMR related things. Um, some of which you can't even control, right? Like thermic effect food. If you lower your calories, that's going to drop. You can't do anything about that. So, but in the reverse, it doesn't really happen, right? When you're, when you're reverse dieting, maybe when you're, uh, taking a diet break, maybe cause you're trying to repair something. But if you're going into a surplus and you're trying to build muscle, it's not likely to happen simply because, your body has to uptick a lot of things in order for that to happen. So the only way this can happen is if your NEAT, your non-exercise activity thermogenesis, really ramps up while you go into a surplus. So if you go into a surplus and you don't gain any weight, it either A, was your old maintenance and your body's just getting back to how often it moves and getting its BMR back to the same place it once was, and it'll adapt quick, or your body is increasing its need as you increase your calories. So you end up taking more steps. You end up sleeping better. You end up fidgeting more. You end up talking more. You end up training harder. And this is this G-flux idea. So you can't really pinpoint an answer to this question is why I'm explaining all this and kind of going on a rant. When you say what's the general amount of time it takes for a slight surplus to become a new maintenance, it could be never. You could go into a 250-calorie surplus to gain muscle, and it could never become your new maintenance. You could just slowly gain size, and at a certain point, you stop gaining muscle, and you only begin to gain fat. And at that point, your body just needs to get out of the bulk. It needs to resensitize. It needs to cut, do those kind of things. But most likely you're going to keep gaining a little bit of muscle and some fat, or you're going to stop gaining muscle after a while. And it's just time to stop bulking because you've been doing it so long, but your body doesn't catch up and just stop gaining completely. Um, unless G flux kicks in. If you have very adaptable metabolism, you probably see it in a sequential manner. And if you do, then you need to lower your step count because if you bump up 250 calories and you gain a pound, but then it, then it like levels out after a week or two, and then you bring your calories up again and then it levels out again. You bring your calories up again and it levels out again. Check your neat, check your habits, check your activity, check your expenditure and see if your body is just upregulating everything. And because of that, it's adapting to this new surplus you're creating, which is a problem just like it would be in the reverse. But it, it's, it's odd for people to understand this because it's like, hey, now I want you to step less. I want you to move less because our goal is to gain and to build. And the only way we can do that is if you're eating enough above maintenance and you're keep moving more and more and more, making this surplus maintenance, and that's not the goal, right? So G-Flux has to kick in for this to happen, and the amount of time is so variant to certain people, and for some certain people, it just doesn't even happen. They don't have that adaptive of a metabolism. So um, yeah, that's, that's the last question for today, guys. That was a really good Q&A. Uh, I didn't think it was going to fill up all the time, but it definitely did. So as always, if you like this podcast, do me a huge favor. Share it on your Instagram story. Tag myself at Cody McBroom so I can thank you for listening and share it on my story. And uh, as always, leave us a five-star rating and review if you enjoy the podcast. Share this with a friend. Help us grow this thing so we can get more free information to more people. I'll catch you next time. <laughs>